Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Patrick Bolton, Professor of Business at Columbia University, Ugo Paniza, Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute Geneva, and Mitu Galati, Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. We'll be discussing their paper, Legal Air Cover, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Patrick, Ugo, Mitu, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Your paper focuses on, particularly during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, the condition of sovereign debt markets in the emerging market. I'd like to start with a question that is going to cover a broad span of time on the topic of emerging market sovereign debt. I'd like you to tell me about the conditions at four points in time. March 2020, the real beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic. October 2020, which is the date of the draft of this paper, Legal Air Cover, the conditions today, May 28, 2021, and the conditions a year from now, May 28, 2022. This is Ugo. Maybe I'll take this question. So you're asking about March 20, October 20, and then now and in one year. In March 2020, we had what, what we economists call a massive sudden stop. Capital was flowing in to emerging markets to the tune of about you know, 20 to 40 billion a month, total capital debt, for instance, in debt flows around January was about 25 billion. And then in March 2020, there was a total outflow of all type of flows of about 100 billion, which outflows of debt were about 30 billion. So we went, there was a swing of about 50 billion. So from inflows of about 25 to outflows of about 30. Flows to emerging market recovered fairly quickly. And by October 2020, when we had the draft of the paper that you saw, capital has started going back to emerging markets, about at level similar to the pre-crisis level, about 20 billions per month. There was then a decline with a trough basically in March 21. Total flows were slightly positive, but debt flows were negative. So again, emerging markets as an aggregate were not able to borrow abroad. But there was again a swing in April about, we were back about to 20, 25 billion flows. So again, a fairly positive value for April. We still don't have the data for May, but I didn't hear any dramatic news, so probably it's about the same. So this is what we know. One year from now, of course, we don't know, and it will very much depend, in my view, on what it will happen to interest rates in advanced economies. If interest rates go up, there could be a massive outflow, which is, and if this outflow is sustained, we could have a debt crisis in emerging markets. That question of what things will look like a year from now is a very difficult and perhaps impossible question to answer, but I do hope we can maybe talk about some of the possibilities as we progress in this interview. That's an overview of what the market has looked like during the COVID-19 pandemic and maybe some things that might emerge in the future. But let's maybe step back a moment and talk about sovereign borrowers that are in distress in general. When a sovereign borrower is in distress, is there a playbook for working out that sovereign debt. What have been some of the outcomes we've seen in recent years? Are there any big case studies that you would offer that perhaps listeners are familiar with? 
Let me take this question, Andrew. This is Patrick. Of course, this question could take the entire hour. It's a very big question you're asking. And to say what happened in more recent years, let me perhaps offer a little bit of context. Sovereign debt restructuring, when a sovereign reaches a point when it cannot continue servicing its debts and restructuring is required, how to do that restructuring, how to help the sovereign in financial distress. That's been a major topic, policy debates over the last 20 years. There was a major, if you want, convergence of the minds with hopefully an ambitious framework being proposed in at the beginning of this century, just after Argentina had defaulted on its debt in 2001. And that was the effort around the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. It went quite far. This is an IMF-led initiative supported initially by U.S. Treasury. And the plan was to really set up some form of bankruptcy mechanism for sovereigns. Now, getting, you know, sufficient number of countries to agree on something like that is very difficult. Soon there was opposition and this led to nowhere. So that was really one first phase. And the second phase, which is important, is a step forward, a major step forward, even though not quite as ambitious as the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. That was to help investors in sovereign bonds to come together to and, and negotiate with the sovereign to either reschedule some payments or write off some principal payments. And that effort was to introduce in most sovereign debt contracts, which is the case today in sovereign bonds, collective action clauses. And the way they work is that the, the trustee of the bondholders or the trustees or committee of, of bondholders, they can suggest a debt restructuring with the sovereign, and then they can put that to a vote. And if you have a sufficiently large support, a supermajority of bondholders in terms of claims held, then you can vote through such a restructuring. That was a major development. It's been rarely used, but in, in a few occasions, extremely successful. And more or less, the situation we're facing today is that of sovereigns that have issued bonds, they have other obligations. But if there's going to be a restructuring, if there's going to be a write-down, that's the process through which it's going to happen. We've had an example in 2020 of something like that happening. That was the restructuring agreed by Argentina with its bondholders to write off a significant fraction of its debt. It's an imperfect model. That's the last thing I want to say, and then maybe offer Ugo and Mito a chance to add something. It's an imperfect model because it's still very difficult to get all the creditors to come around the table and uh, negotiate with the sovereign and uh, agree to a debt relief on comparable terms. And uh, our work that brought us together last year focused on one particular effort, which was to provide debt relief to poor countries in facing the, the COVID crisis. And there, safe to say that this was a failed effort, even though the uh, G20 and the IMF agreed to offer some debt relief to the poorest countries. This debt relief only came from the official sector. So there's official debt, bilateral debt, and uh, the private sector basically stayed on the sidelines. And uh, this is a problem because for two reasons. One reason is that for some borrowers, middle-income countries, most of the money comes from the private sector. So even if the official sector is very generous, that's not going to help that much. 
And then the other problem is you don't want, this is a more political problem, you don't want public money, after all, the official sector is lending public money, taxpayer money, you don't want taxpayer money to be diverted to financing the servicing of private debts where you have uh, private creditors who should have known better than to lend to risky countries essentially being bailed out with taxpayer money. This is, of course, a well-known theme that goes back to the financial crisis, something that a lot of people agree on when it comes to bailing out banks bailing out wealthy investors in banks, but somehow when it comes to bailing out investors in sovereign bonds, somehow that message seems to no longer resonate. Tried to cover a big ground in a few minutes, so let me maybe stop here. Me too, Didi. All I wanted to add was to provide some additional context from a legal perspective about Patrick's beautiful description of the reform efforts in the last 20 years. And Patrick and Ugo were both at different points in time at the table, actively involved uh, in the reform efforts. So uh, their retelling is always uh, fascinating for me to hear. For me, coming from a law school perspective, one of the things that was especially fascinating and now in some ways maybe coming back to haunt us, was the, the choice that was in front of policymakers in 2001 when this massive effort was undertaken to reform the international financial system. And that was whether the global system would be better served by a statutory scheme which had a mandatory system with uh, judicial oversight, bureaucrats running it, or a contractual system where each country would negotiate particular contract terms for each instrument under which it borrowed. And the choice was made to go with the contractual approach. And this, as anybody who studies bankruptcy knows, is a major debate in U.S. bankruptcy scholarship, uh, important papers uh, by Elizabeth Warren, Doug Baird, Bob Rasmussen. And the U.S. domestic system went the bankruptcy route for corporations. Yet when it came to the sovereign context, uh, the U.S. Treasury ultimately decided, no, uh, we need to go the contractual approach. And two decades later, I think we're being forced to ask whether that was the right move. And actually, I've never asked Ugo or Patrick that question in terms of, do you think the international system made the right choice? Europe was posed with a similar choice after its uh, sovereign debt crisis in uh, 2013. They also decided to go the contractual route. But I don't know whether COVID-19 has caused us to rethink it, or maybe the costs of COVID-19 really have not hit us hard enough for us to be forced to rethink it. Ugo, Patrick, any thoughts on Mitu's question? I think both, and, both Patrick and I wrote papers supporting a, a statutory approach. I, I did for sure, and I, I read papers by Patrick, which I interpret as supporting a statutory approach. This is Patrick, absolutely. And I still support the statutory approach. I was young, or at least younger then, and a bit naive. The advantage of the contractual approach is that it's maybe less ambitious and therefore more realistic. But I don't think we should delude ourselves that the contractual approach will get to the bottom of the key issues of uh, sovereign debt restructuring. So for that, we really need, just like with corporate bankruptcy, we need a statutory uh, procedure. 
Thus far, we've talked about a world in which sovereign restructuring, sovereign debt restructuring is a one-off event. An individual sovereign needs to restructure its debt. There are unique facts for why that is in any given case. Perhaps the need to restructure debt has been catalyzed by global macroeconomic effects, but the core reason for why that country needs to restructure debt is is going to be a unique set of facts. And as Patrick noted earlier, it's a fairly rare procedure. It's a fairly rare playbook that we're talking about. But I'd like to talk about a situation as we've seen the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic when we have a systemic event. What happens if we are in a position in which there might be a multiple country concurrent sovereign debt crisis? Is there a playbook available in that case? So let me take this, me too, and maybe Patrick and Hugo can supplement it. Of the three of us, I think I was probably the one in 2001 to 2003 most in favor of the contractual approach. And uh, my papers from then were, I think I always articulated it in terms of, oh, this is the more practical approach. We'll never get a statutory approach. But I always found the bankruptcy code so complicated, and I have a visceral distaste for giving judges discretion, having spent time dealing with the federal courts. But I have come around now to Patrick and Ugo's view, in part because of the answer to the question you asked, Andrew. The contractual approach is an instrument-by-instrument approach and a country-by-country approach that I think has a model in mind where the reason for needing a sovereign debt restructuring is a country overspends, its uh, government is irrational about the kinds of projects it needs to invest in. And so the creditors need to impose a certain degree of austerity and make sure there's economic reform. There's an individualized negotiation where Lots of lawyers and investment bankers uh, get paid a lot of money. But we have nothing. We have nothing that takes into account the kind of situation where the entire global system is hit with an exogenous shock. It is not any individual country's fault. And we need to do a restructuring of lots of countries really quickly. And we don't need to worry about reforming individual countries' economies. I don't think we have anything. And the plans that have been put in place by the G20 are really inadequate, in my opinion. There are two plans, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which is this half-assed stay mechanism that doesn't really do anything for private sector debt, when the vast majority of emerging market debt really is private sector debt. And then there's a supplement, which is referred to as the Common Framework, whose primary focus is on getting China to be involved in the global debt efforts, which may or may not be useful because best I can tell, China's quite enthusiastic about being involved in the global debt relief efforts with respect to the pandemic, at least. So my view is that there's nothing there except some distant memories of the Latin American debt crisis uh, among some of the veteran policymakers. This is Ugo Andrew. Maybe just to add to what Mitu said. So the only thing that we have are these two initiatives that, that Mitu mentioned, uh, that service suspension initiative and the common framework. And just to recap, the three main issues. So, so these are welcome initiatives in my view, but they have uh, limitations. And just to recap something that Patrick said before and what Mitu also said, I think there are 
three limitations to these two initiatives. Number one is the coverage. They only focus on low-income countries, so they don't focus on the big players, the middle-income emerging market countries. The second issue is that so far there has been no private sector participation, so it's just bilateral, so it's a country-to-country debt suspension. And the third big issue, which also me to mention, really not real debt relief here. It's just a debt suspension. So if a country, so it addresses a, a liquidity problem in, in a sense, the fact that countries cannot pay now, but they do not address any type of uh, solvency problem. This is Patrick, uh, Andrew. I can't resist a, a little aside to a comment that Mitu made earlier in his, in his intervention when he said that he didn't like bankruptcy law because of all the complexities of the law and he didn't necessarily want to, to give too much of a say to a bankruptcy judge. And that's, I made me, reminded me of somewhat ironically of how the major U.S. banks, the systemically important banks, how they responded to the efforts after the financial crisis around the Dodd-Frank Act, how they responded to the U.S. legislators' efforts to introduce a liquidation procedure, what they call an orderly liquidation procedure, of failed banks, particularly systemically important banks, in a financial crisis. So Title II of the Dodd-Frank Act has introduced this new procedure called the Orderly Liquidation Authority and something that's typically thought would be run by the FDIC. So how did banks respond? to that initiative. That's the irony here, which I want to bring to the discussion. Banks tried extremely hard not to ever be resolved under the orderly liquidation authority. They want Chapter 11, despite all the complexities that Mitu highlighted. And uh, however, there's an important point here, a, a substantive point, which is that and why something like a bankruptcy statutory procedure is needed What the banks liked about Chapter 11, what they still like, is that it has a fairly predictable way of restructuring claims that respect the uh, absolute priority rule. And what the banks didn't like about the orderly liquidation authority is that the FDIC would have a lot of discretion on what debts to write off and what debts not to write off. That's what they didn't like. And that's a major issue also for sovereign debt. Which debts are you going to write off and which debts are you going to honor? That's the whole debate around offering haircuts on comparable terms. How do we deal with priority issues? For example, all the multilateral development banks, your IMF and so on, they don't want that debt structured. They say our debts are senior. And that creates another major source of tension. Anyway, I couldn't resist this uh, somewhat long digression. The COVID-19 pandemic represents an exogenous shock that is really unprecedented, at least in our lifetime, has put the global sovereign debt market in an awkward position facing the potential of multiple debt crises at the same time. What options do you propose in your paper legal air cover for addressing this unprecedented situation? And the draft I read was dated October 2020. Are there any updates to those options or as things have changed that wasn't very long Ago, but as things have changed since October 2020, have your priors been updated on how to respond to potential sovereign debt stresses related to the pandemic? 
I guess the main change with from October 2020 to now is the guy who sits in the White House. Yes, that's definitely true. But I'll, I'll take a stab at that and leave the matter of whether our views have evolved to Ugo and Patrick. So we were trying to be uh, modest in what we wanted to do in this paper. Although at the workshops we've given on the paper, and there have been many because people were much more interested, at least for me, of any of the other papers I've done in this topic over the last year, people were constantly pushing us to have more ambitious proposals. And uh, we were trying to push back and say, we don't really even know whether this will be too much. But the broad contours of what we were thinking about was, given that we don't have any mechanism from the official sector to resolve a multi-country sovereign debt crisis. And at the time we wrote the paper, we had the Trump administration that seemed singularly uninterested in helping the rest of the world out of a sovereign debt crisis. They didn't really even have the usual high-quality bureaucrats that man the U.S. Treasury Department and have high levels of expertise in sovereign debt resolution that we've seen across Republican and Democratic administrations. There were some people, but they were busy occupied doing other uh, stupid stuff. So our project was about, can we come up with some kind of temporary solution that will buy us time in order to come up with a bigger plan that will enable the restructuring. So in very simple terms, it was, can we come up with some kind of solution that will basically produce a stay on litigation in particular that is bound to occur if we have lots of defaults by sovereigns who have borrowed either under New York law or English law. And simplifying the variety of solutions that we pose, we looked to the past to see what had worked. And primarily, we found in the historical record and in some of our memories that the U.S. government, remember, much of the emerging market sovereign debt is under U.S. law, New York law in particular. The U.S. government had come up with solutions both in the aftermath of the Iran hostage crisis and dealing with those debts, and the Iraq removal of Saddam Hussein. In both contexts, there was huge debt stock that needed to be resolved with a single efficient mechanism, and there was none, and the U.S. president used his authority via an executive order. We were worried, given that Trump was in power, that this was just a silly exercise because he and his advisors had no interest in using the authority that they had to help the rest of the world. And so if that did not work, we thought maybe we can look to a very obscure doctrine of international law called the doctrine of necessity. And law scholars are familiar with the doctrines of impossibility, impracticability. And the doctrine of necessity is a cousin of these, but it does not really depend on 
types of factors that we look on in impossibility and impracticability. Instead, it is focused on the need. If there is a situation where the country is in a condition of extreme necessity and to help its people, it needs to prioritize healthcare, for example, or basic nutrition, international law allows that country to impose that priority on its creditors. And we thought this fits the situation of a global pandemic uh, perfectly, in fact, even better than the doctrine envisions, because the pandemic is one in which there are these severe uh, negative externalities if you do not take care of the situation in individual countries to enable them to buy lots of vaccines and things like that. Now, in terms of the legal detail, uh, my international law colleagues who know about the doctrine of necessity will immediately raise objections such as the fact that there's no real good precedent to applying the doctrine of necessity in such a situation, that the doctrine was not aimed at solving such a situation. But I'm a realist about how courts and judges work. And if the situation is bad enough, I'm confident that they would turn to this kind of a doctrine. But it would require a lot of international support. Maybe Ugo and Patrick can tell us whether our thinking has changed in the time since Biden has come into play. This is Patrick. Me too. This was an excellent summary of the main points of our paper. I don't think that our thinking has changed. I think like what Ugo said, we believe that our paper has gained relevance because of the change in administration in the US and because of the Iraq precedent. I believe this administration is much more receptive to the arguments we make in the paper. And um, if it's, it's up to the administration whether it wants to go ahead with this, but if it wants to go ahead helping the developing world get through a very deep crisis, by the way, it's not over. This crisis is not over. Help the developing world get more oxygen in terms of getting debt relief so that it can deploy more financing to fight the pandemic. The instruments, the legal instruments are there. And I think that's the point uh, of our paper. We're reminding, if you want, policymakers that they're not empty handed. They don't have to view the, the next six months or year in a pessimistic way, thinking that nothing can be done about sovereign debt. The sovereign debt re uh, restructuring will be chaotic, will be lengthy, poor countries will suffer, nothing can be done. We wanted to remind the policy world that no, there are some options. And we believe the, the Biden administration will be more receptive to, to these options that we are describing in the paper. I'd like to talk about some of the barriers to these options. It sounds like the prior presidential administration by default in some ways was a barrier to these options being brought out. But I'd like to talk about some of the other players who are at the table, so to speak. Could you maybe discuss what reactions, and, and Me Too, you mentioned a fear that you and your co-authors have about offering something that is perhaps too strong of medicine to the intended patients, whereas some of your commentators, when you were presenting this paper, urged for something stronger. So I wonder if we could talk about some of those barriers and some of those reactions from the players. What responses might we expect from multilateral institutions like the IMF, bilateral sovereign lenders, private lenders out there, and perhaps most importantly, the sovereign debtors themselves. 
this is Hugo. Maybe I'll say something about this and then uh, see what Patrick and Mito would say. So some reaction that we got is that, and, and these are not worries, actually, it's a positive reaction that we are worrying about something that will not happen. So we have a, a few friends, both in Wall Street and in policy institution would basically told us you're worrying too much. We don't expect anything dramatic down the road. And if something happens, we uh, have the tools to deal with it, which is not the premise with which we wrote this paper. So that's one type of reaction that we got. So it's not really a pushback, but it's really something that, you know, your paper is not just talking about a non-problem. We'll be happy if that's the case, in a sense. The other type of reaction that we got, and we deal a little bit uh, about this in the paper, is that any of this type of interventions, which this ex post tinkering with contracts might actually damage the overall sovereign debt market because people will have the impression that countries can tinker ex post with contracts and so this will increase borrowing costs for all sovereign borrowers. We discussed this issue in the paper and we also do some empirical exercises looking at past episodes on which we observe ex post changes in contractual term. We discussed the case of the elimination of the gold clauses in 1933 in the US, which was studied by authors like Randy Krosner and Sebastian Edwards, which show that actually this didn't have a negative spillover on the asset class. And we also do some original analysis on what happened after Greece changed some contractual term on its debt. And also in this case, we show that there was no negative spillovers on other European borrowers, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Ireland, which at that point were considered very risky. So I would say that these are the two type of responses. I don't know if Mito and Patrick want to add uh, something. This is Patrick. If I may just add one more point to what, what Ugo said. So should there be a crisis, as we believe is likely, certainly not a, a negligible probability. And should there be multiple countries having to restructure their debts at the same time? You know, given the status quo that we have now, the ideas that we put on the table, they are welcomed by the official sector because they understand whether it's bilateral creditors or the IMF, they understand that they're going to be in a difficult situation unless some other tools are available. So they are sympathetic to what we're saying. Of course, the debtor countries that are in distress, they welcome our ideas as well. It's the, just as happened with the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, it's the debtors that are doing fine that don't like anything that we're discussing. They worry that their borrowing costs will go up. So that's going back to the point that Hugo just made. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper? And it sounds like there are some hopeful folks out there who don't think that a sovereign debt crisis will happen or is in the offing, but it sounds like you all are very concerned that there will be. So what key things might we want to watch for on that front? And are there any uh, perhaps even warnings that you'd want to offer? This is me too, and I, I'm not actually going to answer the question, um, but leave it to Patrick and Ugo. But I, I'm recording my part of the podcast from India, and I just came here from the U.S. And in the U.S., there is basically a sense of great optimism that COVID has been dealt with and that we're all going to be vaccinated, at least of the anti-vaxxers. Numbers are going to continue to drop and growth is going to increase. And I had that optimism too. Coming to India 
where the crisis is really awful, worse than anything I've ever experienced, all I hear are ambulance sirens. That's all. I know there are people in Italy and in parts of the US who've had this similar experience, but it just feels like from this developing country that the costs of the pandemic are only beginning to be incurred. And I fear that if the developing world continues to go in the direction that India is going, and India is probably better situated to deal with a health crisis than a lot of other poor countries, and the Western world at the same time is rid of the pandemic, that the policy space is going to be very ugly and there will be an extreme reluctance to do anything to help the poorer parts of the world. And despite my optimism when Biden came into power, it really doesn't feel like the Western world has shown a great enthusiasm to help the developing world yet, because understandably, they have their own problems. But hopefully, Ugo and Patrick will have more positive views of what's going to happen. Okay, Ugo, thank you for letting me go first here. Let me add to what Mitu said. I I'm sorry to hear what you're saying, me too. It sounds, even just watching the news over here, I'm in the UK at the moment. It sounds pretty bad what you're living there on the ground. And uh, here in the UK, it's a similar situation as in the US. The lockdown has just been lifted. A, a large fraction of the population is vaccinated. The summer vacations are in sight. And so there's a lot of optimism. But the news about, even in the UK, the news about the what's now called the Indian variant has everyone's attention. It's still very low in the UK, but it's rising. It's incredibly contagious new variant of COVID. Neighboring countries, European countries, have closed their borders to travelers from the UK. And many people are saying that we could have a third wave, global wave, COVID wave coming, and that it's going to be far worse than the first two waves. So I would agree with what Mitu is saying. It's a very sad situation. It's a, and unfortunately, this is a point that our paper makes, is that it's a pandemic. It's not something you can close your borders to and solve country by country. So it has to be solved globally. And that requires a global effort. And that global effort goes through a lot of financial support and debt relief for poor countries. This is Ugo. I don't really have anything to add to what Mito and Patrick said. I, I'm doing this from Italy, which I guess is somewhere in between in terms of the situation between India and the UK and the US. And I think it's exactly right. I think it's in the self-interest of everybody to try to help the poor country to this problem. And this has to be an approach that goes through, uses many tools and many ways to help the country. One is to be sharing a vaccine, but that relief really will be part of the toolbox. And so I guess our proposal is something on the plate to provide this type of debt relief in an efficient way, we hope. Our guests today have been Patrick Bolton, Professor of Business at Columbia University, Ugo Paniza, Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute of Geneva, and Mitu Galati, Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. We've discussed their paper, Legal Air Cover, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Patrick, Ugo, Mitu, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. 
Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.